Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. We'll continue on in our, our study of this chapter, um, beginning with verse 9 this morning. So give attention to God's Word. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning before we open your word because, God, we, we, we desire not just to hear a sermon, but we desire to hear you speak to us this morning through your word. And so we pray for your Holy Spirit, God, not only for me as I, I speak this morning, but, Lord, even for those that hear, that you would open our ears to, to hear and to receive your word. God, we pray that um, we would not be dull of hearing like the Hebrews that we've been studying. But God, that we would have hearts that would be receptive to receive your word, that our hearts would be fertile soil and that out of that, God, you would bear fruit to your glory. We ask in Jesus name. Amen. Well, this morning, if, if I could use an analogy to describe what the author of Hebrews has been trying to convey to his readers in these last couple of chapters, this is the analogy that I would use. Imagine, if you would, that uh, there was a football team and they were playing a game and, and they were actually doing very poorly. As a matter of fact, they were grossly behind, playing terrible, and it's now halftime. And so they head into the locker room and right behind them is the coach. And of course, he gets them in and they all sit down and he begins to recount what has just happened out there on the football field. And so he talks about the fumbles that they have made and the passes that were intercepted and the blocks that they missed. And he just goes on and on and on. And you could just see the team looks very downhearted and defeated. Well, in some ways, that's sort of what the writer to the Hebrews is doing. He wants to write to them in such a way that he might open their eyes to see the reality of what is going on in their life. And he's saying, look, guys, you're dull of hearing, you know, spiritually immature. You know, as I'm trying to talk to you and share with you the meat of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's just like your eyes glaze over. You don't have ears to, to, to hear these things, uh, these deeper spiritual truths. And yet you think everything's okay. But he said, let me tell you that this is a dangerous place to be. He said, there are those in the church who likewise think that they're okay and, and life is good. Um, and they feel very comfortable with their faith. They have observed, they have tasted, they have experienced the blessings of God. But even though they are in the church, they are not of the church. They are merely professing faith in Jesus Christ, but they have no faith. It really is the outworking of what Jesus taught in the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13, 
where he tells this parable of how this man planted the wheat and then the enemy came in and planted weeds or tares amongst the wheat. And so the servants went out and saw the two growing together and said, should we pull them apart? And he said, the master said, no, lest you destroy the wheat as well. He said, wait till the harvest or till the end of time. And then uh, then we will separate those. At that time, God will separate the wheat from the tares in his church. And that's exactly what we see here in this passage. And, and many of these people will sort of follow through with their lack of relationship with Jesus. And they'll end up walking away from the church, as, as John talked about. And so the writer is, is really writing to these Christians and saying, look, you're sluggish in your faith. And, and the problem is, is that a Christian who is sluggish in his faith and an unbeliever who professes faith in Jesus Christ, their lives can actually look very similar. And sometimes it's hard to tell them apart. And so he gives this very solemn warning. And you can only imagine maybe how these Christians may have received this. Maybe a lot like that football team where they are downhearted and defeated. Now, let's go back to the illustration of the football team. We're in the locker room and the coach is sort of chewing his team out. And they're feeling very bad about the things that's, that's being said. But then after a few minutes, the, the, the coach changes his tone and, and also his focus as well. And he says, guys, look, I know you as a team. I have worked with you for a long time and I have seen you play. And I know that you are able to play better than this. And I know for a fact that you can go out there in the second quarter and that you can control the ball and you can actually win this game because I know you. And so let's get out there and let's go. And let's go win this game. And so he, he, he leaves his team with a sense of encouragement. Well, that's really what the, the writer of Hebrews is, is doing the same thing as as he has warned these Christians about the danger of where they are spiritually, even though they don't see that danger, uh, there may be those that would be overcome with his words. Maybe those uh, 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 of a sensitive soul who may even begin to question their faith and think, well, am I just a professor? Am I not a person who truly believes in Jesus Christ? And, and they begin to waver in their faith. And he doesn't want to leave them there. And so uh, what he seeks to do here today is both to assure them and to encourage them in their faith. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning is two, those two aspects. He's assuring them in their faith and he's encouraging them in their faith. He wants them to see that their progress uh, onto spiritual maturity is not only possible, but it is to be a reality. And so he gives them hope and, and encouragement, but not a false hope. He's not just trying to make them feel better. He, he really, it's, it's a hope that is surely grounded. And it's the same hope that we have as Christians as well. So let's look at these two points today. First, assurance in, in their faith, verses 9 and 10. Let me just read verse 9. He says, though we speak in this way, that is, you know, even though I'm giving these warnings and I'm speaking to you rather harshly, he says, yet in your case, beloved, and, and that word beloved is normally only used when uh, the speaker is speaking to those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can see that he sees them in that way. He says, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And in other words, we see things in your life that are evidence of God's saving faith. 
And so these Christians have a living profession of their faith. It's not just that they're saying that they're believers and yet there's nothing in their life to back it up. He, he goes on in verse 11 and he says, and God will not overlook your work. Uh, he says, verse 11, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Now, he's, he's not saying here that God will reward these believers for the services that they have rendered. In other words, it's like God's looked at your life and he sees that you're good, outweighs you're bad. And so therefore, God's going to reward you. That's, that's not what he's saying. He, he's not saying that your works will commend you to God in some saving sense, even though there are those who have taken this passage and, and interpreted it that way. I mean, for example, the Roman Catholic apologists sort of cite these words to support the doctrine of the meritorious character of good works under justification. Um, but the problem with that is, and that as you look at other passages of Scripture and interpret this in light of other passages, you see that that idea of a meritorious work of our, of uh, a meritorious character of our good works is really uh, foreign to, to Scripture. I mean, take for example just one verse, Ephesians two eight and nine. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves; it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so what the writer is doing here is not speaking to us of the cause of our salvation, but really of the fruits of our salvation. Now, um, I want to look at a few verses, and I want you to follow along with me, if you could. We're going to sort of do an old-fashioned Bible drill, so get your Bibles out. And uh, first of all, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Ephesians 1, 15. Uh, Paul is writing to these Ephesian believers... And he says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He, he says, in essence, I, I consider you believers. I, I pray for you. And, and the reason I do that is because I see your faith. But not only do I, I see your faith, but I also see the evidence of your faith as well. He's, and, and that is the love that you have towards all the saints. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul writes to another church in Colossae, and he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2. Paul, here again, writes to even another church, and he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in all of these cases, he, he says here, I see your faith, I hear your profession of faith, but even more than that, I see the evidence of a faith there. I see that your life has been changed because there is a love there that you have for the saints. Now, flip over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. 2 Thessalonians 1, 3. Paul writes to the Thessalonians again. And 
he, he comes back to this topic again. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because not only does he talk about their faith, but he says, your faith is growing abundantly. In other words, their faith is continuing to grow. Uh, but as their faith grows, we also see as we read on, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So not only is their faith growing, but their love is growing as well. And then you can write this down. We won't turn there, but Philemon 1, 4, and 5, the same thing. We see that same pattern where, where Paul talks about the faith that they have and the love that, that is evidenced there. But turn to 1 John chapter 3, if you would. John talks a lot about, in his epistles, about the, the Christian life. And he talks about faith and, and the impact that that faith ought to have on our life. And he says, for example, that those who truly have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ do not continually live in a habitual lifestyle of sin. So he, you know, he shares things like that. But in, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, he says this, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. But then he goes on and he says, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So how do you want, how do you know if you're a child of God or a child of the devil? It's simple. There, there will be a love that you will have for, for the brothers. Uh, look down at verse 14 of the same chapter. He, he just says it even more clearly. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And so you can see here that, that uh, um, love is uh, evidence. It is a, a mark of a Christian um, if he loves God's people. It, it, it shows whether a person's heart's been changed. And of course, Jesus commands the same thing. In John chapter 13, verse 34, he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And, and we see that he, he says, if we look back at Hebrews chapter 6, he's, he's talking about how these Christians not only have that love, but they continue to have that love, even to this day. And so uh, we see that evidence. Now, turn, if you would, over with me to Hebrews 10, verse 32. He's talking about, in Hebrews 10, about the suffering that these believers had gone through in their life. But, but he also talks about how in the midst of that suffering, they were serving other believers as well. Uh, Hebrews 10.32 says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So in other words, not only did you suffer, but you were also there with people who suffered as well. He says, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And so they were people who, who loved him. So the writer of Hebrews focuses on the ministry his, his readers have shown to each other in the church as a sign of real spiritual growth. And, and real spiritual life. But, but he says that it's not only really a love for God's people only, but he actually says in Hebrews 6 that it's, it's, a, it's a love for God's name. 
the very reason that they could love each other so much and serve each other so well was because they loved God so much. The key to true Christian service is a burning love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, keeping God as our focus and our first love not only gives us the desire and the power to love others and to serve them, but it also sustains us in our love and our, our, our service. You know, maybe you have known people in your life who do serve the Lord and you're so appreciative of their service, but it seems like their service sort of comes and goes. Sometimes they overcommit, so they serve for a while and then they sort of back off. And then others who, you know, will serve, but they'll sort of grow weary in doing that service. But then, you know, other believers, and I would sort of say my wife is like this, if I could sort of uh, brag on her and give thanks to God for her. But, but she has this kind of service. It's a service that just keeps on giving and giving and giving. And you see no end to that. And it's not because my wife is fantastic, although I think she is. But, you know, it's only God's love that has such staying power in our lives. As we know the Lord Jesus Christ, as we grow in him, as we abide in him and he pours his love out into our hearts, uh, we see that love manifest to other people. If I could read from 1 John again, 1 John 4, 19, he says, we love because he first loved us. You see, that's where the, our love comes from. Because God loves us. He goes, if anyone says, I love God and he hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his, own, his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And, and so this is why the writer to the Hebrews is excited to see his readers are busy helping one another. But I also want to... to draw out another point if I could too here about their service actually the word for for service that's used here is diakoneo which is obviously the word that we derive deacon from and so it's a it's a diaconal ministry now diaconal ministry it's not limited to physical meeting physical or temporal needs but but it does mainly address that kind of ministry and uh, and he's he's saying here that that's the kind of service they gave. Now, I know in, in the PCA, there's all kinds of controversy of what is the role of women in terms of the diaconate and, and different churches fall down different places. I, I understand that. But I, I would argue in some ways that's sort of too narrow. As he is saying here, really everyone in the church ought to serve as a deacon, ought to do diaconal type ministry. I, I'm not saying that women or youth or children ought to be on the diaconate. I believe that's a... Uh, office for men only, but we have to all be involved in diaconal ministry. And it's an important part of the life of the church in a vital way in which we show Christ's love to others. Uh, and Jesus uh, spoke to this as well as he talk, uh, talked about the day of judgment in Matthew 25. If you want to turn to Matthew 25, 34, it's a very familiar passage. But we read here, it says, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison 
and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see, it's for this reason that practical love demonstrated in a congregation is a good sign of the spiritual vitality of, of that local body. If we have come to know God and his love for us, if we have responded with gratitude and love towards him, that that love will find its expression as we sacrificially give of ourselves for the sake of our fellow Christians. And, and it, it's not limited only to service to other believers, but to others even outside the church as well. So the true evidence of our salvation is how we treat other people. So assurance of salvation is something that we should have and, and, and even strive for, but it only comes through the active exercise of our faith. I find that oftentimes Christians struggle with the assurance of their salvation, that maybe they oftentimes are actually struggling with this very point of that active exercise of their faith. Maybe they're stagnant in their faith or they're struggling in their faith. And so oftentimes that assurance wanes. But he tells us here that we should be assured because we see the work of God that is in us and that is manifesting itself to us. And so the author of Hebrews sees in this company uh, this kind of work. It's, it's sort of like we would say where there's smoke, there's what? There's fire, right? And in the same way where there's fruit, there must be spiritual life. And so the, this pastor is encouraged and he's uh, assuring his followers of God's work in them. But second of all, he encourages them in their faith in verses 11 and 12. He, uh, he, he begins to pour his heart out to them in verse 11. And he said, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. First of all, what he's encouraging them to do is to look forward to the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. He wants his readers to press onward in the Christian life, to show diligence to, in their faith, to, as it says here in the ESV, to show earnestness or a sense of eagerness in terms of their faith. But he wants them to be eager about the assurance or the certainty of the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. It's the idea that we see in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where Jesus says, that which God has begun, he will complete. And, and we can stand confident in that. And so as we go through the trials and the difficulties of this life, as we are tempted, as, as we are, uh, um, you know, Satan's always wanting to get us off the path, you know, as we go through those uh, times in our life, you know, we can lift our eyes beyond them and to look at the hope that we have. It sort of reminds me of Paul's pastoral prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, verse 18, Paul says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, in other words, having become spiritually alive, having become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the scales have fallen from your eyes, and you see things, you see reality clearly. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That, that God has saved us, and he has saved us to something, to a hope. 
What we have in this world is not all there is. We are looking forward to the day when we can be with him in glory. And he goes on and he says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? And so you see this sense of God is powerfully working in us. And so this is what diligence or earnestness in faith provides. It's an ever increasing awareness and possession of the riches that are ours in Jesus Christ with an everlasting joy. And so he says, keep that sight before you, that hope, and grow in the fullness of that hope as, as you uh, diligently um, move forward. But then he also tells them to look back as well. He says in verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish. In other words, he says he wants you to be earnestly moving forward and not sluggish in that, not hesitant in that. Actually, the word sluggish here, the Greek word here, is the same Greek word that's used in chapter 5, verse 11, that's interpreted dull, that you're dull of hearing. And he says, so that you may not be dull of hearing or you may not be sluggish in your faith, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Uh, what he's saying is, is that we are to look back and to be encouraged by the example of faith of those who came before us. And he's going to talk about uh, this more in verse 13 when he talks about Abraham or in chapter 11 when he talks about the heroes of the faith. And his point is, is that we should learn what faith and patience are all about through the lives of other Christians. Um, and it's for this reason that we need to reflect on what we read in the stories of the Bible. Now, kids, I want to talk to you just for a moment, if I could. You know, I, I know that uh, when you go through Sunday school, that we teach you the stories of the Bible. And uh, you probably have heard these stories a lot. We teach you about the lives of Moses and Joseph and Joshua and David and Jesus and Paul and, and many other Many, 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 many other people. And as you go to Sunday school each week, you, you hear these stories. And, you know, if you're a fifth grader by now, you have heard these stories hundreds of times. You know, because not only have you heard it in Sunday school, most likely you hear it in family worship. Or as your parents teach you as well, some of you may go to Christian schools and you may hear it there as well. And you may hear these stories and, and they may even become boring to you. You may think, oh, I know that story. I've heard that story. As a matter of fact, you just want to jump in and just finish the story for the Sunday school teacher to help put both of you out of your misery, right? And, and sometimes that's how we can approach it. But there is more to learn and apply to our lives than just simply knowing the stories that these Bible stories teach. They are to encourage us when the Christian life gets difficult or when you're tempted or, or you're desired to, to give up. Now, kids, I don't know if you've ever gone on a long walk and uh, maybe you've gone with your family or, or someone else and you get most of the way through the trip, but you're not quite to the, the end yet and you're just feeling very tired and you just plop down on a bench or maybe beside a tree or something like that. You're just like, I can't go any farther. Or maybe you're older and you're running with some friends and you guys decide to run 10 miles and you're thinking, I could do this. Well, on about mile six, you're realizing I'm dying here. And so you're over there leaning against a tree out of breath. And your friend's like, come on, let's go, let's go. And you're like, OK, I I'm, wasn't as prepared for this as I thought. And you just think, well, the Christian life can be like that sometimes. There can be those points in our Christian faith 
where we feel stuck, where we just feel like we, we just cannot go on. And we need to look at the life of those believers who have gone before us and ask things like this, like, what do they say about my own situation? How, how do they uh, inform me about the things that, that I am encountering in my life? Or, or what do they say about the blessings that come through long suffering and patient reliance upon the Lord? And, and that's why you'll hear many Christians who really enjoy reading Christian biographies because they get that sense of, of encouragement. And in those times, it's important that we realize that we're not alone and that the things that we are facing, we're not the first person to face them. And, and yet that's where Satan wants to tempt us. He wants, to think us. he wants us to think that God has forgotten us. He wants us to think that we're alone. He wants us to think that we can't make it. And so he's whispering these lies in our ears. But as we have these stories in our minds and, and they inform our thinking as we're walking through life, you know, we realize that, you know what, we're all like mountain climbers. Now, I don't know about you, I'm, I don't like heights too well. But, you know, let's just imagine we're all mountain climbers. And, you know, when you go up a mountain, sometimes it's a flat path and you're just walking on and it's not hard. But other times it's like this. It's like straight up and you're looking and, and sometimes there's very few handholds or, or very little tiny footholds. It's just like little indentions in the rock and you're sort of looking up above you and you're thinking, I got to go that far? There's no way that I can do that. And yet... Then you see etched in the rock the names of Christians who have come before you. And you realize, you know, I'm not the first one to do this. Others have done this. They've made it. And that encourages us. And it may be there etched in there the, the name of your, your mother or your father. It might be etched there your grandparents or your aunt or your uncle or a, a good friend or, or a youth pastor or, or senior pastor of a church that you used to go to is etched there. And you realize they've been this way. And that encourages your soul. Or if you've been a longtime student of God's word, you know the fellowship that we have with the heroes of the faith. And you may find yourself struggling to leave behind the pleasures and the treasures of this world. And then you remember Moses. And you remember how he gave up everything. Being in Pharaoh's household so that he might... Obey the Lord and go and lead a people out of bondage, a people who would complain and fight him every step of the way. And yet in that you find encouragement as you go through your life. Or maybe you find yourself serving others with no recognition from anyone around you. And you recall young David's experiences as his brothers would go to battle. He was stuck watching his father's sheep in what seemed like an insignificant role at the time. And yet God used that mightily as he raised him up to be king of Israel. And so that encourages you. You may find yourself surrounded in a pagan culture, struggling to be useful in the world and yet not become like the world. And, and you just think, how can I do that, Lord? And then you remember Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And, and, and as encouraging as those figures are, Ultimately, we remember the Lord Jesus Christ, how although he was God, he entered into our very struggle. You know, when it says that he became flesh, that doesn't mean he just became human, but it meant that he entered into our struggle. He understands what we go through and the things that we wrestle with. And, and he entered that so that he could lead us through this barren world into the paradise and heaven. So in all of our trials and our sorrows, our chief aspiration should be to have fellowship with Jesus, 
to draw near to his heart, to know him through obedience and following the example that, that he had. That's what Paul did. In, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says that I may know him, that is Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and may share his, in, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see, what Paul realized that changed his life in every way is, is that every valley that he went through and every peak that he traveled in this world, he saw that Jesus had already walked that way. You know, that it was a path that Jesus had left for, for us to follow, to encourage and to strengthen us. It was a path where you look to the side, and, and I don't mean to be flippant here, but it's like you see a sign that says Jesus was here. And you realize he's, he's come this way, and, and he will help us in our times of difficulty. And yes, I know that path leads to the cross, but that path also leads to the open tomb where Jesus was resurrected, and then the dawn of a new creation in the glory of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as is, is, is we hear these words, I hope it encourages you in your faith to be diligent, to be earnest, to be eager in your faith. Uh, to grow in that full assurance, to, to think back and to realize that God has been at work in the lives of his people for centuries. And, and he has left them there to encourage you in, in your walk with the Lord as well. So keep that before you as you leave this place today to face life in all of its fullness, whether it be the pandemic and all that that entails with people who have fear and worry. Maybe you're struggling with fear and worry. Maybe frustration with people over all of this. It could be that you're not sure about your job and in your financial future. I mean, it could be the political backbiting that's going on in our country and the signs of decay in, in our culture and in our country. It may be the struggle that you have with the world that's pulling on your children, and, and, and you, you're very concerned about that. It could be the challenge of finding a godly spouse. There's just so much that we face every day that, that's hard. It's discouraging. It weighs heavily upon our hearts. But he is calling us today not to lose hope. Not to lose hope. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, he says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And, and we oftentimes see those three things put together. And that is something that God is doing in the hearts of his people. He is giving them hope. He gives them faith and also love. And as you look at our passage, I just want to close again by reading through the passage again. And I want you to see that all three of these things are here that God is doing in his people because he loves them. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you do. So God has given them his love. And we each and we desire each of one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, faith, or love and hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit his promises. 
brothers and sisters, we can rejoice and we can be assured and we can be encouraged because God is working in us this faith, hope, and love. Please bow with me, if you would, for a moment of reflection upon the passage we've heard today. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your mighty work in us, for the work of your Holy Spirit that you sent uh, to be our other comforter while, while you are sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven, overseeing all things. And we thank you, God, that you are at work within your people. And I pray this morning, Lord, for those that may be disheartened, Lord, those that, that may be struggling and wrestling with their faith, and we pray that you would encourage and assure them, Lord, of, of the, the work in them. And I, I do pray, God, that we would grow in our faith and in our love like the Thessalonians, that, Lord, we would not be sluggish, we would not be dull of hearing. And, God, if there be any that are here today who are such and, and are complacent in that, that, God, you may... Uh, shake them awake in essence to see the reality of the condition of their heart and their soul. And Lord, that they, you would uh, work in them, God, to, to cause them to grow on to maturity, to enjoy the things that you have given to us and to delight, Lord, in the deep riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us all to grow in that. Help us to grow as a congregation in that as well. Lord, that we might manifest that in even greater love, not only to each other, but to others as well. We thank you, Lord, and pray this in your name. Amen.